So I'm back here with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines, and we'll get right into it. So the first couple that we're actually going to talk about is with the software factory. So big news with the software factories. And in the U.S. Army, here's one headline, deterring great power conflict through software development. Army Futures Command now has their own software factory. Quote, it's been an interesting two and a half years of getting this organization stood up. The software factory is the latest add to Army Futures Command family. We are beginning to see the impact of that idea way back then is having on the Army and really across all of the services. So it looks like there there wasn't really too much information on precisely what products were coming out of the new software factory, but they did say they're trusting relatively low ranking officers. So there's a couple majors that were in charge of standing this thing up. And it looks like the continuing, uh, the ongoing operations will actually consist of a cohort of roughly 30 soldiers and civilians as well. So it's not going to be a large organization, but um, excited that the the army has their own software factory. So what's your thoughts? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of this. The one thing that they are doing different that I think is from the others is instead of focusing on centralizing a software factory or a DevSecOps pipeline back in the acquisition shop, which is really what we've been pushing, right, is for these acquisition programs to to have that DevSecOps pipeline and to be able to develop software programs in the most efficient way possible and, and start doing it faster. But I think where the Army is taking a little different approach, I know they're doing some of that on that front, but I think where they're focusing here is more about getting talent at the edge so that you don't have to bring everything back to a single software shop. You can have folks solving problems at the battalion level or at the forward deployed locations that may not have a lot of software people there. So I really do love love that idea. I think that has a lot of potential. If you go on some of the Ensign, the National Security Innovation Network site, the Army actually has a robust uh, presence there with different communities that are working on various digital projects. So I think they're well poised to be successful. I do worry a little bit, maybe the one thing that did stick out, I think you mentioned it, is that they're doing 30 soldiers. Now they're going to do 30 later in the summer and then another 30 next winter. So that's only 90 people. It seems like they're going to have to scale that to really get good coverage across the across the. But, but I love where it's going. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it's like for the Air Force, it would be like AFRL standing up a software factory, whereas most of those are actually in the acquisition organizations for the Air Force. But it's interesting because also another part of that is, I wasn't really clear on this, but the way you're making it sound is that the Army isn't going to have one centralized CICD pipeline, as it were, but this is something a little bit different is supporting a more decentralized, you know, everyone else can use their own kind of commercially available options for infrastructure or platform or what have you. And then what's the, the kind of role of this army software factory? Yeah, I think the factory and they're using the term factory. I think the factory is more of they're putting these, these soldiers through like the paces to, to get working to hone their software development skills. So it's almost like they're turning, turning them out. Not that they're necessarily, I think, developing a lot of software there. I think if I read a different article, I think they are going to develop some software there in Austin where this factory is at. But the, the big point is to train them so that they can go, go leave other places. And I will say like the Air Force has something similar. It's not as formal as this, but the, the Air Force has like these spark 
skills as part of the AFWorks core. And, and the idea there is that folks can pursue some digital projects and, and get some funding to solve some of those problems that they're like bases that they're at. So I think there are pockets of this in the other services. It's just not, I don't think they've made it as like forward leaning focus um, as, as the army has. Yeah. So the next one here is from the Navy software factory. The forge wants to reshape how ships get upgraded from USNI news. The forge recently stood up a sleek office space just off the university of Maryland college park campus. Rear Admiral, Okano, the program executive officer for Integrated Warfare Systems, who oversees the Forge, said there's three factors that led the Navy to stand up this new software development and fielding ecosystem. The first in general here is <laughs> that the, the Navy's processes are too slow to keep up with the advancing threat and probably commercial technology as well. The second is they're pursuing a naval operational architecture that will tie together ships and aircraft and requires a, quote, force-level integration combat system that can't be created through traditional means. And the third one is the digital revolution has made things like digital engineering and virtual twins more commonplace. So this was actually a really great article. It was a longer form article that, that went into a little bit more about how the Navy was going to stand it up. But did you have any overview or thoughts on it? Yeah, I guess the one thing that I love the idea, it's, I think similar to what we were just talking about the Army, is instead of relying on these contractors to do every single upgrade, why not have some, a government team working to solve some of the problems? Maybe some of the bigger, the heavier lift ones you have to have the contractor go after, or maybe not. What was interesting to me, though, is that they were even able to do this in terms of data rights. And I guess it really shows that the Navy did a good job in terms of thinking about this early on and making sure they had the, the data rights to be able to do this, because to me, that would be your first major challenge is, can you get access to all the software to fix it, to make some of these advances and, and trust trust some organic development teams to do it that may not have had any involvement in the original development. So yeah, they must have really good documentation and they must have good data rights to be able to pursue this. Yeah, definitely. Here's another interesting quote that kind of goes into a little bit more Quote, the, the Aegis system has been virtualized. The capability has been replicated with software and totally separated from the hardware. And the Navy is working on virtualizing SSDS ship self-defense system next. The Raytheon originally built SSDS. Lockheed Martin has since won the contract to manage SSDS and will take its experience virtualizing Aegis and apply it to the second combat system. So that gives a little bit yeah. more insight. I was just, it was confusing to me because they kept talking about virtual twin in this article. And I'm not really sure how, because they were saying things like digital engineering and virtual twins. I wasn't really sure if the virtual twin was the same thing as digital twin or whether it was like they're using the term for virtual, just virtualization of the applications in general so that they can be executable anywhere. And so I think we saw this with the Air Force when they were testing automated updates through Kubernetes to the F-16, but that didn't mean that they had a digital twin necessarily of the physical plane. And so I'm not really sure. It wasn't clear to me from this article whether the Navy was integrating like the digital twin thought process with the ability to do what they're doing through the DevSecOps into kind of one process. Did you have a better clue on that? Yeah, I think what they've done is they've taken the entire weapon system and they've taken the same software that's the same use, but they virtualized the hardware pieces so that 
these these teams can actually work on upgrades to it and have what you use the Navy term, what stem, stem stern to stem or something like that. Basically, from the beginning to end, they can test out the software and make sure that it's like fully integrated, working properly. And and then when they actually migrate it to the actual hardware, confidence that it will work. So that's that was my take on that, is that they were able to virtualize some of these probably large <laughs> ship self-defense systems, probably able to virtualize some of the weapons, the missiles and stuff that might be used in that defense system and be able to test it out. So let's move off of the software factories and on to Elon Musk SpaceX wins contract to develop spacecraft to land astronauts on the moon. And this is actually in the Washington Post. <laughs> so... It was a pretty yeah. interesting story here. In winning the $2.9 billion contract, SpaceX beat out Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, which had formed what it called a national team by partnering with aerospace giants Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper. SpaceX also won over Dynetics, a defense contractor based in Huntsville. According to documents explaining the decision, SpaceX's bid was the lowest among the offers by a wide margin. NASA wanted to carry two competitors, but his budget couldn't even support a single contract award. SpaceX updated his payment schedule to fit in NASA's schedule or fit in NASA's budget. It really looks like uh, <laughs> space. I think a traditional viewpoint here would be that SpaceX bought in on this contract and or on the program, and then we're probably just going to see cost growth later. But I don't really think that's exactly what's going on. It seemed like Jeff Bezos was taking the right what seemed to be a winning strategy have a national team with the with mm-hmm. primes. And that just seemed like it was probably pretty enticing, but looks like budget pressure ultimately made NASA go with a, a single award to SpaceX. Yeah. I thought it was crazy that they were that, that they lowballed it that much in terms of their budget that they thought they could get to large teams to compete. Definitely interested to see what happened there, but I don't know. I laughed a little bit when I first read National Team and I looked at Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, Draper. I don't know so much about them, but in terms of in terms of overhead and typical like cost that they bring to the table, adding Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman to the table had to bump that proposal cost up significantly. So, yeah, SpaceX definitely took a more streamlined approach, and it seems like uh, that was smarter. Yeah, that's why I'm not really. It's not sure whether SpaceX you could call SpaceX's bid lowballing. Or whether they're just like, when you look at ULA versus SpaceX launch costs, or maybe they're just much more efficient or they're, they're just going to throw a ton yeah. of IRAD into it because that's the Elon Musk dream, like first the moon, then then Mars. They definitely have yeah. the will behind it. Yeah, I think too, I think one of the differences probably is that Elon Musk is probably less fixated on the cost aspect, although he has a stock he has to worry about his shareholders, but He's probably as fascinated just as the type of person he is as getting this mission. Whereas when you form that team with everybody, everybody on it, there's other potential kind of things that play long-term interests that maybe are competing a little bit. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about curious about all the dynamics there in terms of how that national team was formed and like how they planned to piece it out. And when, like how detailed the contract was too. I was wondering, is it is this like an open-ended contract? Is this like land astronauts on the moon, you have flexibility to do it however you want to do it, or was it more precise in terms of exactly what they had to do and things like that. So I think there's more to learn here that I'm kind of interested in. Yeah, I assume like Blue Origin wasn't planning on a lander. I think Lockheed Martin was the one with the land. I saw I actually saw a picture of 
the Lockheed Martin lander next to like Starship. <laughs> and it was just, the Starship was humongous. <laughs> of course, it's a different way of getting there. It's more of like a one or two stage versus a three stage that they were going for in the Artemis. But moving along here, this one kind of concerns me a little bit. And I'd be interested to get your viewpoint on it. Military-wide data requirements document coming soon, Joint Chiefs Heighton says from FedScoop. Quote, the new document will define several technical requirements for networks and data standardization that will be used to implement a common data architecture across the force with hopes of enabling the type of rapid data sharing and processing needed to field modern concepts of operations and artificial intelligence enabled warfare, end quote. I understand the the point of this and what they're trying to go for. It just feels like they're going back to a big bang definition of the requirements that everyone's going to have to conform to. And especially like the JSIS process has lost a little bit of standing with some of the new pathways, but I think they're always looking to re-exert themselves. So what's your view here? Yeah, I think I have two minds of with this whole thing. One is that I've had some exposure with the unified data library that the Space Force is working. And I think the way that they're approaching it is right. It is not without complications. And there's a lot of a lot of hurdles with, with getting data owners, like the, the different organizations that actually own the different pieces of data to have them share it. So I think I think it's not like at all without its challenges, but I think it's moving in the right direction. I do worry like you about the joint staff having centralized control of what is definitely going to be a very complicated thing to handle. Like it's going to be, it's going to be something that's going to have to be managed very carefully, but also in a way that appeals to or meets the needs of the various customers. So doing this centralized thing where they're going to mandate that everybody follow this one particular thing, I think is tricky. But if they do it in a way where they say, here are some common standards, maybe for the different mission systems or for different things that will definitely need to talk to each other, and they start to mesh that into something coherent, uh, I think it could work. But I, I do worry about one standard to rule them all. So I'm with you. I'm with you there. Yeah, it also seems like you're going to get into one of these paralysis by analysis, because if you have to set it, if you have to lock it before you go, then how much time are you going to have to be deliberating across numerous organizations to figure that out and get all the equities met? It seems like it would just make sense. The Space Force seems like a good place to start out because they are consolidating, what was it, like 60 or 70 organizations play in the space realm. So you already have a sandbox there to try some of this stuff out potentially and then see what the lessons learned are and, and build out rather than the one big approach. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Okay, so the next one here is Hadrian is building the factories of the future for rocket ships and advanced manufacturing from TechCrunch. So here's the CEO. It's, a, it's really a small company, only a few people, but here's the CEO talking, quote, let me tell you how bad it is at the moment and what's happening over the next 20 years. Right now, everybody in the space and defense, including SpaceX and Lockheed Martin, outsources their parts and manufacturing to small factories across the country. They're super expensive, they're unreliable, and they're completely invisible to the customers. If you can imagine a Gantt chart of how to build a rocket, about 60% of that time is buffer time. A lot of delays in launches and stuff like that happen because parts got delivered three months, three months ago. <laughs> I just think it's amazing. Like He was talking about pushing up to 95% of all like rocket 
or launch vehicle co components being done through 3D printing. And so it just seems that's where the future is. <laughs> there probably is a bunch of mom and pop shops that we've had over the decades that are doing things in an old way. It seemed like the, the CEO was talking to a lot of them and actually trying to sell them business software to improve their uh, productivity. And then he said, quote, I realized that the right way to bring technology to the industrial space is not to sell software to these companies, it's to build an industrial business from scratch with software. So I think this might be one of those excellent kinds of examples of Mark Andreessen's corollary to his software is eating the world that software native companies will figure out hardware better than hardware companies can figure out the software. Yeah, no, totally agree. This is this has been on my radar for a long time in terms of the the lack of resilience in our supply chain and how one small factory, you know, that maybe you'd never even heard of or that the company that they're supplying to doesn't pay attention to at all. They have one issue that and all of a sudden there's this like ripple effect where you can't some big parts. So yeah, I think this was interesting about the fact that SpaceX is relying on maybe not reliable suppliers. And so that, that really shows the kind of the fragility that needs to be solved here. And this solution seems like right up the alley of where we need to go with one, making sure we have reliable components and stability in the system. And I think also with this 3D printing, it's going to bring in some competition, maybe reactivating some of these plants across the country that are being used. It may even bring some jobs to places that maybe are, are, are suffering a little bit in terms of opportunities. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I think this has been, been needed for a really long time. So pretty exciting. Yeah, it was my impression that SpaceX actually insourced a lot of the component development because they saw the parts were just way too expensive for those guys that were supplying the traditional aerospace companies. And I guess there's also some other companies like Relativity that were trying to build rockets from 3D printing. Potentially this kind of components-based approach where they're not trying to be like a prime integrator allows SpaceX to take advantage of a lot of those 3D printing advances without themselves being native to it or having to own that themselves. Yeah, because I, I don't think you want to insource if you're SpaceX. You don't want to insource everything. There's a lot of, I, th I think they're right that there's a lot of inefficiencies in a lot of these places that are using like really old tools and the tolerances aren't off. So probably there's probably a lot of scrap rate. So I think it does make sense that they, they want to solve that problem, but it probably also doesn't make sense for them to build everything thing themselves. They have core competencies. And if they grow into this big behemoth, they're going to lose some of those efficiencies. I'm happy that they're buying into this approach, let some other people solve these problems and then just make sure they can, you know, get them what they need when they need it. Yeah, definitely. This next one here was uh, not surprising, but still surprising to some. Navy's cheap littoral combat ships cost nearly as much to run as guided missile destroyers from the drive. Both budget, <laughs> da both budget data obtained by the publication re revealed that annual cost of running a single LCS is currently around $70 million, compared to approximately $81 million for an Arleigh Burke class guided missile destroyer, the DDG. So there's a big difference between those two classes of ships. Not only does the DDG just have a ton more like sensors and other types of equipment on board, it displaces three times more uh, volume of water than an LCS. And it's much larger in general. And so obviously one of the, one of the reasons that the lower plan manning costs for the LCS, one of the reasons for this is that 
there was lower plan manning for the LCS. It was going to be super efficient, super low cost to operate. And it's interesting because we hear all this, oh, we need to focus on sustainment. I feel like the LCS was, let's build it by focusing on sustainment. And yet that didn't, there was a lot of kinds of potential fantasies in there. I think they had a 40 knot requirement that kind of created a lot of compromises elsewhere, but that all of that led to greater contracts contractor maintenance requirements. I guess that's, this is just one of those acquisition case studies for people to learn from, right? Yeah. And that's a good point too. I didn't, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts and they brought to mind the fact that F-35 was originally built around affordability, but the F-35 was also built around sustainment because it was supposed to have common components for across the, the different variants and stuff. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think that maybe needs more research is we say as a truism that if you plan for sustainment in the early design, you will somehow solve it. But what are we missing if we're doing things like this, which is intended to to go after that, and then we totally miss the boat, you know, no pun intended. What what is it we should be doing differently? Yeah, that is a really good, it's a really good point. This is starting to feel to me the more that I read about LCS and how you know, now they're going to have to add more people onto the ships that are not built for that level of manning and potentially going to have to pull mission modules or pull other equipment. And then the mission modules, which are intended to be interoperable or could plug and play kind of thing or not. And then the sustainment costs. I, I, and the fact they don't even carry that many weapons and that the one weapon they did integrate was, I guess they had a lot of problems with it. So I don't know. This is feeling like a pretty rough program to me. I hope they don't go too much deeper into this and maybe find a, a new uh, new approach here. <laughs> feels, it feels like a bad road to, to, to go down. But Yeah, one of the things is they're showing the annual cost. But I want to see what that is according to steaming hours or op tempo or some kind of like other metric based on usefulness because the LCS has missed a lot of deployments and has broken down a lot. So most of his time was probably not actually at sea or they weren't at sea for the same amount of time as the DDG. So if you put it on a normalized basis, that could look very much worse. Yeah, I think they noted in the article that it had not, that they, I think that the quote here was, these ships have not yet ventured into Central Command's littoral dominant area of operations. So I don't know, maybe that says it all. They haven't felt confident enough to even take it into the air. Yeah. But one thing that it, I don't know if you've seen the the trends in decommissioning of ships, but like the number of mine hunters has just been like a lot of those guys are getting retired in the past few years and the upcoming years. And the LCS is basically the only option. <laughs> there was supposed to be a mine countermeasures uh, a module. I'm not really sure if that's operational yet, but it's like the only thing that will be hunting mines, it, it appears like. And that might not make the most sense to me. I don't, maybe the old wooden boats like that Rick Rover actually, the only boat that, that Rick Rover ever captained or commanded was a, an old wooden mine hunter, but it seems like a much cheaper option. That, I don't know, that mission strikes me as something we could maybe go with some kind of autonomous vehicle, <laughs> a mine hunter, just see that mission seems perfectly suited for that. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. The next one here, DOD implementing new enterprise ICAM tools to support zero trust. The Department of Defense is working to implement new identity, credentialing, and access management ICAM tool. The first users who will be offered the use of the tool are in the DOD's financial management divisions and will be given access 
on a fee-for-service basis, D-O-D-C-I-S-O, David McCown told senators. I, so I point this out, not just because like, first they're, they're going all in on zero trust and um, that's going to be a big change. It's interesting that they're starting with financial managers. I guess that's a kind of lower risk area for them to do it, or maybe it's higher yeah. risk. I, I can't really tell. It's lower operational risk, but it's <laughs> higher like oversight risk. I'm not sure. But then this fee-for-service basis was also really interesting to me. So it, it looks like they're going to a more of a cloud-based or like an Uber-based model for how they're going to price that. I wonder how, how they're getting that done. Yeah, I, I don't think that part is too novel. I think I think there are some other examples like that. Platform One, right? Like for the for the DevSecOps pipelines is, is a fee-for-service approach in terms of buying whatever service that you need for your for your capability. So I, that kind of makes sense to me because they're probably trying to recoup some of the costs that they put into it and probably trying to get some quantity, quantity buys too with the, with the offer there. But I'm with you on, I'm not 100% sure how this works because I know there's other zero trust solutions that are being developed. So I am interested to see how appealing this will be to the other services or the other components and what, what is special about this that is not already being done. And so I don't have a, I don't have a good sense of that, but yeah, this will be interesting to watch and see if this becomes like the new platform one or the black pearl or the place to go for, for this enterprise solution. But yeah, it's not clear to me how that's all going to play out. Next one here is US I did see your note. I, I did see your note. I have to say, I did see your note on blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> when I just skipped the baggage yeah. and go right to blockchain because the identity, yeah. the credentialing, the management of access controls is all built into that. So it seems like the DOD is going to pay a lot of money for, for this new zero, zero trust kind of environment. But then when they want to move over to the next thing, this potential baggage and the investment costs and the sunk costs. We'll hold them back from making that. Hey, we already have what this thing offers, and they're not really seeing the broader use cases that blockchain will enable. Whereas zero trust just is its, it it is what it is. Yeah, you're right. It like screams when you hear like authentication and, and like access and stuff like that. It screams blockchain. I but yeah, yeah, good point. So the next one here: U.S. Army finalizes requirement for future attack reconnaissance aircraft from Defense News. The council met April 9 and greenlighted the requirements in the form of an abbreviated capabilities development document, ACD, that validates the design developed by two companies competing to build the, air, the aircraft. Lockheed Martin Sikorsky and Bell are head-to-head in the competition to build prototypes and fly them beginning in November 2022. So the abbreviated capabilities development document that's, I think that goes along with the kind of middle tier of acquisition process where they don't have to lock in these dozens of really like requirements and specifications. Instead, they can keep a lot of that open as they iterate through, even though this seems more like a traditional program where you have two incumbents that have already de-risked a lot of it. But uh, yeah, so what's your thoughts? This is the FARA. It's not the FLORA. I'm not really sure how to say it. The F-L-R-A-A, which is the long range um, assault aircraft, but those are both part of the future vertical lift enterprise. Yeah, I'm with you. It feels in a way like it's maybe novel because they've they've maybe de-risked, like you said, they've already done some of that work a- ahead of this, but it also doesn't feel that different to me than the TMRR phase where 
for a lot of other platforms. And I think the Comanche, if I'm not mistaken, as soon as I saw this, my, my head went to the Comanche, but I think they did a similar thing too, where they did some prototypes and they picked one. Yeah, I hope they have better success with this. I hope that they're keeping the design flexible or the, I'm sorry, the requirements flexible so that if they find that certain things are particularly challenging, they can save them for future iterations and not try to solve, you know, world hunger with the first iteration of this new aircraft. Yeah, I think that, I think they have. And I think the Army, if you look at what they're doing with the optionally manned fighting vehicle, I think they are taking that approach. They don't really talk much about that here, but I am hoping that abbreviated CDD, which is typically used for for like MTA programs, is going to help them be able to do some trade-offs if they find that, yeah, we're, there's just some really big challenges that we're not going to be able to overcome here. So maybe we need to relax a cer- certain things for for the first version. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm optimistically hopeful for them here. Yeah, definitely. The next one here, DOD's innovation ecosystem is growing, but strict compliance is a barrier, DARPA director says from FedScoop. While she did not name specific compliance regimes that are hampering growth <laughs> of the innovation base, two or new requirements for contractors have added in recent years, including the need to rid their networks of specific Chinese-made technology and to ensure their cybersecurity beats basic DOD standards. While she wasn't being specific, she was being pretty darn specific. <laughs> so that's the kind of yeah. the Buy America, and there's a couple sections in the NDAA for getting... Chinese made technology out of the supply chain. And then the cybersecurity maturity certification CMMC is the other one there. I think those are both completely right. The CMMC is a, you have to make these big investments without really knowing whether you're going to have the contract on the back end or how you're going to expense it. And then the Chinese made is just, how do you know, like all the way down in your supply chain, who's doing what and what that is. And the authenticity of it. And sometimes China is just the only source and you have to, I guess you have to, I'm not really sure what the real requirements are, but I think they're saying like basically anything is going to have to get a waiver. And I'm not really sure how easy that waiver process is. What's your yeah, views on these that, double barriers here? No, it really worries me. I think this is the, exactly the kind of stuff we need to tread lightly about because we've gotten some interest from the non-traditional sector that doesn't typically do business with DOD. And I think we have to be really careful that we don't impose things on them that just make it really hard to work with us. So I don't think waivers are very easy to get from my understanding. So I think they are prevented from using any Huawei or ZTE. I think there's some other companies out there too, Hytera. And so they are probably going to have to figure out a compliance approach for that if they want to do business with DOD. I, one thing I don't have a good sense of is what are the alternatives for them in terms of some of those 5G components or things that the Chinese have made advances on that, that we're still playing catch up. So it is really a shame that in some cases we might not have the best substitutes for them. But we talked about CMC last time. I think there's more people coming out of the woodwork asking for exemptions I really do hope that DOD or the CMMC accreditation board take a look at that and say, okay, how do we phase this in a way that that gets at our intent, that gets all the big guys up to speed, and then slowly starts to onboard the smaller vendors. So, yeah, I think Lauren Nassenberg of the Nassenberger of the Air Force, the CIO there, I think she said it right: is hey, let's maybe give them some requirements, but not give not have them do the full CMMC uh, thing right away. So maybe we can have them grow into it. 
Yeah, I thought that was a big one when Nelson Berger, she said she had mixed feelings on it. People are really coming out. <laughs> they're not saying it bluntly, but they're voicing their concerns publicly, which, you know, is a big thing in of itself. The next one here is the new ICBM cost can must come down, Heighton says in Defense One. In 2019, the CBO assessed that the cost of the ICBM replacement a program called Ground-Based Strategic Deterrent, or GBSD, would run $61 billion over 10 years, or $18 billion more than what the office was projecting in just 2017. I think that the program can come down significant. <laughs> I think the program can come in significantly cheaper, Heighton said, is if it's designed correctly, it's digitally engineering process that should be able to build things quickly and much more effectively. So I think one thing here is that it seems like DOD, almost most people in DOD and even a lot of congressmen, I, I saw them on the floor last year and they, there was a bunch of speeches in favor of it. They're kind of for GBSD in general, but they just wish it was cheaper. <laughs> and digital engineering has a lot of, of promises. And I think the program manager there has actually been in there. He has a long tenure. He's been there for several years and I think that's a benefit. So this thing's kind of his baby and that might have some benefits in the management space. But I think a lot of people are skeptical just because of first, we haven't built in something like this in a long time. But second, people always say, oh, we'll do it differently and better this time and it'll be cheaper. And that's like the whole point of these independent cost estimates. Oh no, it's not going to be better <laughs> or cheaper or faster. It's just going to be exactly like the last <laughs> time an inflation adjusted. Yeah, you're probably right. I know Colonel Bartholomew is like the, the lead on this. And yeah, I don't think there's a better person to run this, but they've used, they've been using digital tech, digital engineering, right? This was Dr. Roper's poster child for digital engineering. And I know that they ran a lot of those models. There's, I think, some pretty good articles about that to pick what was optimized for lowest cost and to meet the different requirements that we had. So I thought that at this point, they would have gotten a knee into the affordability curve and I'm not sure, I'm not sure where the cost savings come from. And I guess that's what's not clear to me. He says he's met with Northrop Grumman and that they they should be able to build it cheaper. So yeah, there might be some things built in here, like you said, that are just unavoidable costs of building a nuclear weapon system. And like we had, like we did on the legacy systems, we're probably going to do some of the same things, nuclear surety and different parts that have to be super specialized and the building of the rocket bodies and all those different things that there's only so many costs, so much cost you can burn out of that. Yeah. I'm curious to see where he thinks this, where the savings would come from. Cause I, I kind of thought they had already gotten to that point, but I will say I am a little bit disappointed at general Heighton's focus in his last days in the, in the chair focusing on this. I, I feel like there are some other people we could have solving this problem and there's a lot of strategic stuff that really needs his help. So, so hopefully he can, um, he can feel comfortable that this is in good hands and, and move on to some other of our larger challenges before he, before he departs. Yeah, definitely. It seems I was talking to some folks that were trying to estimate the, this a few years ago and they're like, all right, I found some reports on the Minuteman 3, and uh, <laughs> here's some reports from the <laughs> 1960s and 70s. <laughs> but I think when you say that, it's hard to imagine how they got there. I assume the $61 billion, that's the CBO independent estimate, and they I guess they were um, estimating it in the 40s of billions, is what the program office was thinking. 
it's not clear to me whether how true is this digital engineering thing, right? Because if you do, if T1 cost is T100, T100, right? If your T1, T1 cost, your first unit of production using digital mm-hmm. engineering is the cost that your T100 would be your 100th unit down the learning curve in a traditional program, what would like, if you just assume that to be true, what would that do to the CBO's estimate? And that might be a huge bound of uncertainty as to where it's going to land. But I guess some of it is this critical. Are you just going to do it regardless or not? And just make that go, no go almost decision. Yeah. And also what are the trade-offs? So if, is there something to trade off that would help bring that number down or is that is our requirement six? So where do you do the trade-offs? That's where I'm interested is we want to bring this number down, but what gives right to, to do that? But yeah, it's interesting to see. It would be interesting to see how they built that cost estimate, but yeah, I'm not sure where they find the savings at. Yep. The next one here, Space Development Agency issues new requests for information for satellite vendors, Space News. The agency intends to buy 150 satellites for Tranche 1 to be launched in late 2024. The plan is to award multiple contracts as SDA wants to create an open marketplace where vendors can compete for orders. The concern, however, is making sure that the satellites from different manufacturers can talk to each other. A critical requirement for SDA satellites are optical crosslinks. So the SDA in tranche zero, I forget exactly how much it was. I think it was 20 or 30 satellites that they did for this transport layer where they're really moving data around. And now they're going to go for 150. It was 28. Yeah. I, I honestly, I like what SDA is doing. That just makes a lot of sense to me that the commercial market is budding in this space and the ability for them to get at a lot of vendors to do something almost, it seems like a commodity at this point in, in some respects, as long as they can integrate into the architecture in, in the right way, then they're just off to the r- races with this proliferated architecture. Yeah. I love the vision too. I do think that the space control, all of the functions that you need to consider when you're deploying a satellite constellation, comms are almost the number one, right? Because if you think about a satellite, if you can't, if you can't communicate it with it very well, if you can't download data from it very well, it's not a very usable asset. So yeah, I think this is really critical. I know there are optical crosslinks, crosslinks in general have been a thing that space has wanted more of. There's a lot of challenges to it. You have to do it just right and stuff like that. I'm glad to see that that is something they're pursuing, but I think they really do have to uh, consider the architecture that is in place that will be needed to to get the data down, to get it onto the right networks, to get it to the right customers. And they, they are going to really uh, have to think through some of those challenges. And especially when you add different vendors in the mix, that may have different different formats maybe that they like to use or maybe even proprietary formats or things like that. Like they're going to really have to look at all that and make sure that it's not going to create overdue complexity in the system and just make it really hard on space operators to manage these things because that won't, that ultimately won't be helpful. Yeah. I think this article did a good job of laying out some of the challenges and hopefully SDA can work through those. Yeah, Andrew, I'll be interested to see where kind of SDA lands and whether they can keep their seeming independence <laughs> and their ability. They actually have a pretty reasonable budget for just being a portfolio. It seems like they're a portfolio architect, 
but then they're also fielding their own constellation. So they're more than that. But I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you have to be in the game if you want to architect the portfolio at the same time. Yeah, I think the one thing they're going to have to figure out is how they work together with with the new space systems command, because there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap in and some of the things that need to work together, some of the things that need to be integrated, and, and I think that relationship may need to be uh, may need to be improved upon or at least deciphered so that they they're not stepping on each other's toes when it comes to the uh, fielding part of this. I just want to quickly touch on this one because it's. It was everywhere and weird at the same time. DARPA awards three companies contracts for nuclear spacecraft by 2025, the Hill. General Atomics will work on the reactor and concept for a propulsion system. Blue Origin and Lockheed Martin will be on track B, developing operational system spacecraft concept and designing a demonstration system concept. General Atomics is getting most of the money here. It's just $22 million because they're doing the propulsion, the nuclear propulsion Blue Origin and Lockheed get about two to three million dollars each. Uh, it's interesting. <laughs> I don't really have any comments here. It's just interesting. That's what uh, DARPA decided to go after. No, I think it's great. We one of the things that is really hard in space is is having being able to have enough fuel to complete different missions, and it's usually the thing that that life limits the satellite is it runs out of fuel. So I think this will have major implications if they can prove it out. So I'm glad this is something DARPA is tackling and it, the applications for it, like for the future, just some could say astronaut, but like, this is great. I really hope this works. And uh, yeah, this is one to watch. Sure. Yeah. I wonder like how much different is this going to be than like the Viking or some of those spacecraft? <laughs> I think this one, it seems to me that this one will, that's one of those Viking ones. Like it took, it was like a really slow, it was like super the only way it could do its mission was to use really low propulsion kind of approaches, if I if I recall that. And so this one seems if you actually have nuclear power at your disposal and you're you have enough nuclear fuel on board to complete a long mission, power would not even be an issue. It wouldn't even have to be something you consider. So you could probably do missions a lot faster and more efficiently and not just try to use natural orbits to get to where you need to go. So I think maybe that would be the difference. I don't know. Yeah. Last one here, update, JSM successfully released from the F-35A, Janes. The Norway and DOD conducted two initial in-flight test releases of the Joint Strike Missile, JSM, from the F-35 CTOL. And so the JSM, of course, is a fifth-generation, long-range, precision-guided standoff missile system designed by Konigsberg Defense Systems in Norway. So it's always... There's always something going on with the F-35. You, you could have a, a list of, <laughs> of news articles just on what the F-35 is up to, but they see how important is this for them to be launching the JSM for you? This is a big deal for Norway. You might all you might almost say this has been Norway's number one priority on that program for a long time. They probably would have traded off some other things if, if they hadn't been on a common variant with, with all the other nations. No, this is huge for them. They're definitely going to try to, to try to market this as a weapon to for others to buy. Not it's not going to be just for themselves. They're going to try to they're they're usually if you go to any trade shows, uh, aircraft trade shows, they're usually marketing JSM. It's like front and center. So I think this is a big for them and they're definitely gonna be looking to make some sales. It is a pretty expensive missile. So I will be curious to see how many countries buy it at scale, but it's very capable as well. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they how, they, how that works out and how many countries jump on board. Yeah, I wonder how many the F-35 could carry. 
probably just two would probably be the max payload for that. It's a big, it's a pretty big weapon. Two would be max. Yeah, let me see. Do they say in there? No, I don't know off the top of my hand, but it's a rather large weapon. So it might just be one, to be honest. Yeah. I wasn't, I, I didn't actually know that it was like a fifth generation. Like, is that just like all aspect or like how low radar cross section is this missile? Do you have any idea of that? I think the fifth gen piece is that it has, in terms of the the accuracy and the, the guidance and the different environments it can work in. So it's fifth gen you know, for I, missile I think, land rather than fifth gen in terms of what we traditionally think of in, in the aircraft world. Yeah, I think it. I think of it as similar as the JASM that the uh, the Air Force has and that we've we've been making upgrades to forever. Yeah, it does. It does have some low signature still, and the, the JASM has some similar aspects to it. Let's see here. I just pulled up something on it. Yeah, it has standoff launch capability for detection of land or sea-based targets. So it, it has a lot of tracking tracking capability. Data links. It's highly maneuverable. So yeah, I think that's probably why they put it in the fifth gen category. And it looks and, like they do have a deal with Japan to to supply Japan some uh, JSMs for its fleets. So that's a a positive development for those guys. And this is actually the same missile that is the naval strike missile that they're putting on the like the LCS. Or no, not they were gonna fit the LCS with the DEG. Is that right? Or do you know? Or are those two separate I'm not programs? Sure. They might be two separate. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. That that's it for us on this week's acquisition headlines. So thanks Matt and join us next time. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.